So my first assignment as a priest was at St. Joseph's in Shawnee. It's a wonderful parish. Maybe it's a little bit like uh, your first love. You never get past your first love, or at least never forget them. But that parish has a rich history of nurturing and fostering vocations to the priesthood and religious life. And they, they have in that culture then a great love for their priests, uh, which is just evident in the way that they relate to us. So I was there as an associate pastor. The pastor came at the same time as I did, so just two of us were there. Priests say that the role or the job of a, an associate pastor is the best job that you could ever hope for as a priest, so you know, enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> because an associate pastor does what you would typically associate a priest doing, offering mass, hearing confessions, teaching me in the school, all those fun things, without any of the administrative responsibilities that bring those nice headaches from time to time. So I could simply say, oh, you don't like that? Uh, that's the pastor's department, right? <laughs> you're, you're upset with this? Uh, that's not me. <laughs> he had meetings every night that we had uh, a devotion to our mother of perpetual help. So we had a weekly devotion to our mother of perpetual help. I had not been introduced to that, um, and since that time I call upon her aid every night, our mother of perpetual helps. So it's situated within the context of exposition, the Blessed Sacrament, and then benediction at the end. So there are prayers and such in the midst of that. And I recall distinctly even though it's been 15, 16, 17 years ago, kneeling in front of the Blessed Sacrament exposed in the monstrance and just being struck like by lightning. What's the love like? What must the love be like of the God who would humble himself to come to us in the form of this lowly piece of bread? And then it turned into a prayer, Lord, look how you love us, as tears welled up in my eyes. Now, God is not far removed from us. John Paul II, in his coronation homily, said that salvation history and human history do not run on two parallel tracks without any intera interaction or engagement of God in our life. He said, salvation history is human history read in its true depth with its true goal in mind. And when you hear the word history, don't hear you know, a series of dates and events, but it's all that which makes up mankind's history. All of our trials and tragedies, all of our struggles and triumphs and joys, everything that makes it up, all of our music, all of our culture, all of our science, he said, salvation history is human history read in its true depth with its true end in mind. It's not as though God is some watchmaker. He created the world like a watchmaker creates a watch, winds it up, lets it go and steps back and has nothing more to do with us. No. No. As the first reading makes clear, God has compassion. He knows the plights of human beings. And he engages and intervenes, drawing the Israelites, for example, out of slavery. 
and then spending 40 years with them helping to understand it, to learn how it is to be free, to have freedom by teaching them his commands, to help safeguard them, protect them from the evils of the neighboring tribes that would capture them or from the evils that well up in the human heart. That will enslave you if you give into it. Here are the commandments to keep. And notice how he does work in a marvelous way. In their need, he provides manna, right? You heard that. But what did he do? He allowed them to experience their poverty so that they came to understand it's not by bread alone. We are composed of something more than just material atoms. We need something more. But it's especially and uniquely that God intervenes in the person of his son. God became a human being, entered into this world, walked where we can still walk this day, reverence where it is that he was born and where he was placed after he died. God intervened, come so close to us that he shared in our sufferings, our joys, our tragedies too, and ultimately in our death. And as if that was not enough, he provided some way in which we might truly encounter him in our own day. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you do not have life within you. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. In the original Greek, when the Jews quarreled, how can this man give us his flesh? In the original Greek, the word that's used for eat was translated from the normal word that can be taken metaphorically. You eat up your competition. You eat up this discipline, whatever to a word trogon, from flagain to trogon, which only has one meaning. It means a frenzied biting and gnawing on a bone. To indicate quite clearly, I'm not talking about this in some metaphorical way. Our translation tries to help us by translating that word as feeds. Maybe you notice that at the end. He who feeds on me, but we can still understand that metaphorically. I'm fed up with my homework. I'm fed up with my job. <laughs> but in the original, no. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. What is flesh and blood together? When our flesh and blood is apart, we're dead. When flesh and blood is together, what is it saying? There's a live person that you are encountering. And St. Paul, anticipating our question, well, then how do we have access to that? Says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We're at no disadvantage in 2023. And look, that which we receive, if we receive it in faith in the hearts of believers, has the uh, power to transform. Because the loaf of bread is one, we, though many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. That which we receive has the capacity to break open our le little egoistic self, our little small world, to something much greater and grander, and unite us together in a common purpose. 
salvation history and human history don't run on parallel tracks without any interaction. No, God has intervened and continues to do so. In that same homily, John Paul II said, and it is the church's duty, mission, to witness to this truth, All right, which is behind what we are pursuing with our academy, for example. We live in a place, a country, that is pluralistic. So we would anticipate some, all, approaches to education are just going to look at human history without any reference to salvation history. Do we not? Understandable? In a pluralistic society, you can choose that way. But can you understand human history in its depth without salvation history? What's the mission for us to do the same thing that everyone else is doing? No. Is it sufficient simply to slap an R, a religion class, and a cross on the window and say, yeah, we'll just take over what everyone else is doing, and that's fulfilling our mission? John Paul II is saying, no, 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 no. Your mission is something else. Your mission is to witness to the truth that God I have intervened. God has intervened in time. It's precisely the same thing that's behind all of that information that you supplied if you were here six years ago when the uh, fundraising company asked for opinions on a church. I went through all that data. I never once saw anyone say, we would like it to look like a bank or Panera Bread. We want a church that looks like a church because the creator of all things descends on the altar in our midst, intervenes again, so that which surrounds him and on which he lays needs to correspond, needs to witness to that truth as angels and archangels and all the saints join in singing, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts. Friends, love itself enters the world not in pride, but in humility. And therefore, the only legitimate response of a believer to that fact is a humble witness to that truth, who soon becomes present on this altar and enters the hearts of believers.